Paramedic 61, District 6. Stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378-1654. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, ladies and gentlemen, once again, it's time to go inside EMS. I got to tell you, I mean, this has been a really busy week. I'm Chris. This is Kelly. We got no time for any of the antics. We've got some really great stories to get to. Kelly, it's been a really big uh, news story week and you know first off there was a big study that came out that talked about that uh, BLS was better than ALS and we've been debating this for years but the first story I think we want to get to is the new ACLS guidelines and I know you kind of checked them out uh, let's go ahead and start this thing off with that yeah you know uh, uh, AHA uh, introduced their their 2015 guidelines changes yesterday Thursday uh, and and apparently it's so back Thursday even for the American Heart Association doesn't seem to be uh, much changes from the 2010 guidelines they look very very similar in fact some of them are, are flat out unchanged what struck me is that you know they, they have they have given the official blessing or recognition to to things like pit crew CPR but some of the other the other uh, things we were hoping such as the uh, a more critical eye toward epi and resuscitation uh, was not addressed we're still recommending epi and uh, it seems to be much ado about nothing I'll have to read through the guidelines further to see what other subtle changes were done but virtually nothing has really been changed in basic life support and, and advanced cardiac life support uh, all the big things are, are still there. What's your take on it, Chris? Yeah, you know, Kelly, I, I was with you 100%. And they, certainly the AHA made it sound like this was going to be some earth-shattering you know, information and, and things that you and I have talked about for years. And, and our next story that we're going to talk about in a little bit is the fact that, you know, the, this doctor that did the study is saying that a lot of what we do in EMS isn't based on, you know, isn't based on science, isn't based on study. And, and when we look at the AHA guidelines, you know, they're, they've, they're throwing stuff in there about Narcan now and, and cardiac arrest. And, but what about the, the lidocaine? What about the, the epinephrine? What about the things that we inherently know that, you know, they're not working because we don't see them work? I was a little bit disappointed. But uh, what's really interesting now is that we've got to take this back and we've got to decipher it. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that I think happens in our career field, Kelly, is when the AHA guidelines come out, everybody thinks it's the end-all, beat-all, that this is the way it's supposed to run. Yeah. And I think a lot of people forget that the medical directors still have a lot of you know, say into how we're treating their patients. And mm -hmm. even though that the ACLS guidelines, the CPR guidelines say that this is the way that it's going to be, I've known a lot of EMS medical directors that have said, I don't care what the AHI, AHA guidelines are, I believe the current science and I want you guys to do this instead. So this is going to be really hard to decipher and I don't know how we, I don't know how you go, if I was sitting on top of an EMS system right now, how do you go forward? Exactly. <clears throat> you know, the, uh, so many people refer to these as, as AHA standards. Uh, and they're anything but they are they're exactly what they purport to be guidelines but but too many people treat them as the standard of care and and now you see AHA uh, catching up with some of the things that that uh, large progressive EMS systems have been doing for a number of years um, with without uh, adverse effect or or increased liability or anything else you know the these uh, cardiocerebral resuscitation and pit crew CPR and things that were that differed a little bit from from AHA guidelines 
the science was strong enough to support it, and those agencies' medical directors adopted those uh, uh, those practices. Yet, it's amazing to me in this day and age how many agencies still wait for the official AHA stamp of approval before before implementing any new changes. I don't know the Epi thing. Uh, AHA has, has apparently chosen not to address it this time, uh, but that study is is just recently ongoing in, in the UK and, and may may not have had the opportunity to percolate through the uh, through the establishment yet. So we may see and uh, you know if the if the results are dramatic that, that Epi is is not beneficial in cardiac arrest, you know, there there still stands a chance that we may see a uh, a uh, revised recommendation on Epi and cardiac arrest at some point between. You know, AHA has made a has has uh, done that in the past when evidence is compelling enough, uh, they'll issue a guidelines change uh, in between major revisions. So um, remains to be seen what will happen. But the story seems to be that AHA is still AHA, slow to adapt and uh, and lagging behind current research. Yeah, and it's really really interesting. I mean, some of the guideline recommendations for the healthcare side for healthcare professionals upper limits of recommended heart rate compression are still the mm-hmm. same, 100 to 120, at least 2 inches of depth, avoid depths greater than 2.4 inches. You know, then there was a thing that talked about temperature a little bit. Target temperature management helps prevent brain degradation in post-cardiac arrest. And this is where they're kind of talking about, you know, that the temperature should be between 32 and 36 Celsius. And Kelly, if my if my uh, math serves me right, I think that's 89, 90 degrees to 96 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in those things, healthcare providers are encouraged to simultaneously perform steps like checking for breath and pulse in an effort to reduce the time off the chest and first compression. Uh, you know, again, it sounds like exactly what we were doing before. But I think now we've got to think about how are we going to, um, you know, teach this to, to our folks? Because I think that we have to be able to bring them some information even if it's different, maybe maybe it's mm-hmm. time to look at those courses like uh, you know ACLS for experienced provider. I love that course, and one of mm-hmm. the things about the ACLS EP course is it gives the provider now the whys you're doing what you're doing when yeah. you're looking for the you know when you're looking for the causes of asystole. It talks about all the things that you're going to be treating and how you're going to be doing it. I want to switch gears with you, Kelly. They also brought up the key points from the guidelines uh, to provide bystander, dispatcher, and communities with some mm-hmm. uh, guidelines as well. And I think that, you know, you and I have talked about before that in the chain of survival, it's getting our, our hands on the chest as quickly as we can and, of course, getting them to the defibrillator as quick as they can. So, so they're talking about untrained bystanders should still call 911 and provide hands-only CPR, push hard, push fast. And there was an article I was reading last week that talked about using a metronome, but uh, I still kind of like the staying alive, and I, I, I've mm-hmm. used that in my head as I've been doing CPR. I don't know if you've Let done that. Let the bodies that. hit the floor is my favorite. Is that what you're using? Yeah. <laughs> However, I mean, they're both great songs, you know, coming from the disco era, so shut up and leave me alone. But uh, However, you know, if bystanders train in CPR, they can perform breasts if they want to. He or she should add breasts to a 30 to 2 compression rate. Bystanders should use mobile phones to immediately call 911. Place on the uh, place the phone on the speaker so the dispatcher can help the bystander. Uh, dispatchers should be trained to help bystanders check for breathing and recognize cardiac arrest. You know, th- this is one of those things, and I'm going to give it to you after this one, Kelly. One of the things, a- and our gold standard right now for uh, a- uh, ACLS resuscitation comes out of King County in Seattle. Nobody can refute 
that mm-hmm. they're not doing a great job with some 50% of return to spontaneous circulation. And, and then our friends up there in Minnesota in the Linus system, they're very, very close with a 48% uh, return to spontaneous circulation. But one of the things they do up in King County is, and haven't gone to the Resuscitation Academy up there, they'll go ahead and say, you know, so someone will call 911 and said, I think, I think my mother's unconscious. And they'll say, well, is the patient breathing? Um, I think so. Is the patient breathing normally? Uh, no, I don't think so. Start CPR. So yeah. we really have to get to a point of getting these people on the chest quicker and you know, being able now, dispatch-aided CPR is really going to be the key to make sure that there's going to be some successful resuscitations. Yeah, uh, they're, they're embracing the, the citizen CPR and, and public, uh, public access to defibrillation, the things that we know works. Uh, and, and that's continuing a trend that's been going on for 10, 15 years now. <laughs> Guidelines seem to be following the same trend that we've, we've been observing for the past 15 years or so, that uh, BLS outcomes or BLS interventions are the ones that we know to be effective, uh, and therefore they're they're uh, focusing more on those. It will be interesting to see uh, what comes about uh, as more research comes to light, particularly on the, the UK study uh, on epinephrine, um, to see if these guidelines might change. Uh, I'll have to, I heard some rumblings about uh, lidocaine making a, a minor comeback. Can't really talk intelligently about it until I've read all the guidelines, but uh, um, uh, same thing with uh, there were some some mention made of, of naloxone and cardiac arrest and we'll see how that goes. Uh, most of the current research I've read says that naloxone is one of the H's and T's, you know, uh, overdose uh, and and treating that particular uh, that particular uh, cause of cardiac arrest is is pretty much useless uh, because in cardiac arrest uh, um, naloxone. Well, let me go back. Uh, there was there was some mention made uh, I saw of uh, of naloxone. I'll have to read a little further uh, in cardiac arrest. What that actually says, I'll uh, will maybe a topic for a later podcast. But um, we'll see what it says. You know, uh, uh, just uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out over the next uh, the, the next few months and and see which of this is a. Uh, is, is stuff that we welcome and which of it is stuff that we roll our eyes and wonder why uh, American Heart Association is so hidebound and slow to change. You know, it's one of those things, man. I mean, again, where's the research? Where's the study? Where's the, the proof that all this stuff works? And Kelly, this is going to take us into our next story. This week, October 14th, a study came out that says BLS patients have higher rate of survival than ALS ones. <gasps> Calm down. You okay? You okay? Oh, dear heavens. <laughs> the research found that people that patient population studied were more likely to survive if transported in a BLS ambulance rather than an ALS ambulance. And I, I just want to talk a little bit about this study and then I want to talk about how how I think flawed it is. Mm-hmm. Because you know, we we've talked about you and I have debated this before as well, but so basically what the this researcher is saying and this is a researcher who deals with ALS and BLS uh, research, you know, patients suffering cardiac arrest, stroke, other life-saving emergencies have a better chance of survival if they're transported to the hospital by a BLS ambulance rather than an ALS ambulance. And some of the things that they're talking about here in this study is that, you know, an ALS, ALS ambulance will take on average 24 minutes to get to the hospital mm-hmm. because they're doing all these evasive measures and they're intubating and they're giving medications and they're starting IVs and you know that BLS ambulances get to the hospital you know at least 50% faster 
You know, but I think that there's some fundamental challenges with that. Even though it's taking us longer to get to the hospital, we may not be transporting these cardiac arrests off the scene anymore. Secondarily, mm -hmm. we don't know the structures of how these systems are set up. Another point is we don't know the, the severity of the patients that we're picking up. BLS patients that are going to the hospital aren't as sick as ALS patients that are going to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So their ability to survive after the fact, and I think that the woman who did the survey, she analyzed 400,000 patients between 2006 and 2011. So I think that there's some you know, really uh, you know, big research that went into this. Patients mm -hmm. with cardiac arrest were 5.9% more likely to survive for 90 days after the attack after the accident if they were transported in a BLS ambulance rather than an ALS one. I can't believe that there's any difference in that treatment. Just because you're rushing somebody to the hospital and you're doing CPR and you're not securing the airway, you know, you're doing BLS before ALS. You know, stroke patients were 4.3 uh, percentage points more likely to survive 90 days if they were transported in a BLS ambulance. Uh, critical major trauma patients were 12.5 percentage points more likely to survive 90 days if they were transported in a BLS ambulance. I don't know what to make of it, but I don't know that I could put a lot of stock in it as well. I'm going to have to go back to the point of saying that I think ALS does make a difference, but I don't know that this was done correctly. You know, the... This study brings brings to mind three three main points. Uh, first of all, it's uh, you know file this under water is wet, the sky is blue. Uh, gosh, who would have thought that critical trauma patients do worse if your scene time is longer? Gosh, uh, that's just earth shatteringly uh, amazing. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why, why are you saying that? Why are you saying that? You're not going to go back you know, to this whole golden hour thing, are you? No, no. I'm hoping. Well, you know, I, apparently the sarcasm didn't come through. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, this is something that that we. This is not news. Um, we've known that that uh, at least for transport, uh, or that at least for critical trauma. Um, rapid transport, short scene times, uh, arrival at the appropriate uh, receiving facility uh, is the key to survival. Um, the, the infamous L.A. taxicab study, uh, they call it, I can't remember the name of the principal researchers, uh, uh, some years back that, that concluded that, that shooting and trauma victims did better if they were dropped off by taxicab uh, in Los Angeles area hospitals than they did by ambulance. Uh, and the simple reason being is that speed uh, to definitive care was the deciding factor and spending too much time on scene um, reduced these people's chances of survival. Well, it's, you know, it's no surprise that, that uh, a scene time of 24 to 28 minutes for ALS versus 14 for BLS for critical trauma patients um, would show a, a pretty significant difference in survivability. The other thing that struck me is, is this woman this was a random sampling of Medicare-only recipients from non-rural counties. So they, they were coming from urban environments uh, where presumably speed of BLS uh, or the speed of transport and, and BLS interventions, it, it kind of weighted toward uh, the efficacy of BLS. Whereas uh, in the, in the urban, uh, rural environment where transport times are longer, um, the ALS might uh, potentially be more beneficial. Uh, take a little extra time to secure that airway, get a vascular access when you're 45 to minutes to an hour from the hospital versus uh, pick up and uh, you know scoop and run um, if you're in an urban environment. She's postulating that. She's saying that, hey, you know, these scene times per potentially were longer because they're doing all these ALS interventions, but her study wasn't weighted to actually look at 
the efficacy of those interventions. Uh, there's some inference there that that intubation, uh, quality of intubation attempts uh, is somewhat lacking. That's something we've known for quite some time in EMS. No hard data that says, well, uh, IV access and drugs and intubation and, and all of this sort of thing is, is uh, contribute to worse outcomes. She was looking at ambulances that were dispatched ALS versus dispatched BLS um, and, and what their outcomes were. I just, you know, apparently the injury severity scores were fairly well matched for the trauma patients between the two groups, uh, which, which brings to mind that's not, you know, that's not news. We, we've long studied the, or we've long known that, that aggressive fluid resuscitation in trauma is probably not a good thing and that long seen times in trauma are probably not a good thing and that endotracheal intubation widespread intratracheal intubation is probably not a good thing. You know, it did show that seen times make a difference. Uh, I don't think you can make the leap that ALS as a, a skill set or, or procedure, ALS procedures, are the culprit here. Uh, more likely, it is, it is the propensity for ALS providers to linger on scenes when they shouldn't. And one, one uh, commenter in a Facebook thread uh, addressed very well, pointed out that, uh, you know, the disparity in quality uh, in in paramedic education programs uh, is is also at play here. You come to some places and and paramedics understand these these relationships uh, and treat accordingly. Um, it's also I think it's also I think the indifference of the paramedics given yeah. the, given the care as well. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know that um, I'm, because how many times and I don't mean to cut you off, but you, you touched on a little bit of a nerve for me. But how many times when paramedics come out of school that they think that they're at the top of the food chain and they're the best clinicians when really that's where their training starts and they're not doing anything to increase their knowledge when they're seeing these things and you know I, I think that you know not only is it the fact that the, the training programs but I think the onus has to go to the indifference of some of the paramedics are out there who are thinking I know everything there is to know about EMS yeah you know and and this uh this commenter uh andrew jekyll who is uh i don't agree with everything that he says but uh he's he's a pretty astute guy uh says you know these other developed countries with als don't seem to have these issues um uh, their education is generally better than the united states and, and the, they don't uh disparity and and or wide variance in the quality of als training programs uh, is is not as much of an issue uh, across the pond and in Canada as it is in the United States, and, and therefore those are not uh, necessarily uh, uh, confounding variables uh, in studies like this. Right. She mentioned she mentioned inju injury severity scores for trauma, but she did not, uh, as far as I could tell, in reading the study and, and listening to her video. Uh, have any way to control uh, and, and match uh, severity of the cardiac, uh, the, the MI, um, which MI patients uh, apparently had a better 90-day survival rate uh, with ALS than they did with BLS. Um, but she didn't have a way of comparing um, uh, severity with the respiratory distress uh, and, and that sort of thing between ALS and BLS. And, and that goes back to generally in a, in a uh, response system where you have both ALS and BLS, the ALS patients get transport or are generally sicker. You know, uh, paramedics are transporting them because they are sicker. Uh, otherwise, they would have turned them to, to BLS units. Right. Now, she was, you know, she, she tried to, to control for that particular variable. 
looking at the places that had BLS only and, and seeing how they were dispatched. But there's there's numerous methodological flaws and, and holes in the study, right. but I don't think we can discount it entirely. And Brian Brian Bledsoe pointed this out very well. Um, and Brian's always been one of those guys who was unafraid to say unpleasant things about EMS that we need to hear but don't really want to hear. Right. Um, but he pointed out that you know how thorough she was in in um, in trying to to uh, control for these these variables and and to match these uh, study groups well. Uh, and that it illustrates very, very well that most of our patients do not need ALS and possibly won't even benefit from it. Um, and I think that's something that, that that's our takeaway message. We don't need to reject this study out of hand. We need to, to look at her, her methodology and her results uh, and, and use that to, to guide our care. Is ALS really necessary in, the most, uh, in most situations or in our most life-threatening situations? And if not... How can we better uh, uh, utilize our resources and, and provide care to our patients? Um, you know, here's, here's a scientific study saying that most people don't need ALS care. How long have we said that on this, on this very podcast, Chris? Yeah, you know, and I think that one of the things to think about here is that we don't really know what this data is saying yet. This is, we're looking at this, you know, at a macroscopic level, and we really have to get into this and get into it a little bit deeper. You know, there was a great comment on Artsia's column, and it came out of Auburn University. One of the uh, one of the subscribers out there from EMS One says, as in most academic studies, there is usually a predetermined conclusion. So if you torture the data enough, it will con uh -huh. confess to anything, which I thought was brilliant. But one of the things I want to hit you with is just uh, before I give it to you for closing is this. You know, I, I think that when you look at things superficially, you're going to be able to get superficial data. Now, to say that BLS is better than ALS, I still don't think that there's any proof to that. One of the things that the author of this study talks about is times. And documenting times, you know, they were off or, or, or it was happening. We know how we document. We do not document correctly. If we're pushing epi, if we're giving a shock, if we're doing CPR, if we're intubating, we're doing that all at 838 in the morning. You know, we're not keeping good track of our documentation. Here's a woman mm -hmm. that looked at 400,000 Medicare patients and looked at documentation of those patients, what does she have to go on? Garbage in, garbage out. And we're yeah. not doing a good enough job to document, and this is going to be one of those times, Kelly, that this is going to bite us in the butt to say something that may not really be true. Now, I'm going to tell you, I think in the days of community paramedicine, we're going to start to see more BLS systems and more chase vehicles than we are going to see mm -hmm. um, Paramedic, 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 basic truck. I believe it. If I was in charge of a system, I would start to, to look to move in that direction because I think that we're going to make more bang for the buck by keeping the community healthier and being more of a community health agency than uh, that sometimes has to do ambulance calls, as my friend Chris Montero says up there in Colorado. But I think that one of the things that we've got to think about now is are we delivering the highest quality of patient care? We've got nobody who's in charge of our EMS career field who's saying that you're doing it wrong. Every state has the right to do it any way they want, and I think now those challenges are giving us some poor data. But that's just my feeling, and, uh, you know, I think we got two clinical issues here, Kelly, that we that we got to keep a watch on. Yeah, you know, and and uh, as the... Uh, I think this illustrates very well uh, the need to, to claim ownership of our profession. Um, you mentioned 
that uh, the the researcher from Auburn said that you know uh, everyone comes into uh, into research with a, a predetermined conclusion. If you uh, torture your data enough, it'll confess to anything. Um, if if that is the case, and I believe it to be so in most cases, we've had uh, you know it's not a blanket rule. Um, but if you want research that supports the efficacy of of EMS in general or ALS specifically. Uh, I think it's important that EMS researchers be doing this. We can determine the course of our profession, or we can let people who do not understand what EMS is all about uh, do studies like this and, and be at the mercy of, of the data that she's, she's gathered. And keep in mind, this is a retrospective observational study. It was not a randomized controlled trial, and she acknowledged that you know, doing such a trial is, is going to be problematic in the United States. How do you do a, a prospective randomized uh, control trial of ALS versus BLS uh, when when those those modes of, of delivering care are so entrenched uh, that they're you know ALS is considered a standard. Um, but uh, when your entire study is based on crunching numbers, you are at the mercy of the quality of those numbers, and and the quality of the numbers uh, uh, kind of suck when it comes to what we gather and what we document, as you pointed out. If we want if we're pissed off that this study does not reflect well on advanced life support, then take it to heart. And EMS people need to start doing some studies on advanced life support. Uh, and perhaps the, with uh, understanding what the issues are a little more intimately than a non-EMS person and, uh, and weighting our studies appropriately, we might wind up with, with different results. So where this takes us remains to be seen. Uh, I don't think one study is going to affect the provision of EMS care in this country, um, but this is something certainly we should pay attention to, and if nothing else, spur us to start doing our own research, uh, EMS research by EMS people, and, and that's the way we take ownership and, and provide the stewardship and the guidance for our profession to grow. Uh, but we'd like to hear what you think. Let us know your thoughts, comments, concerns, suggestions. Email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Civilero, we're out of here. Thank you guys for tuning in to Inside EMS, and we'll catch you next week.